We are journeying together through Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. We've been in this letter just a few weeks now, and we're going to do something a little bit different, perhaps unexpected today, but we'll go ahead and start in Romans 1, so you're welcome to turn there in your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 1. We saw that the the theme of this letter is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And he announced in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter that that's what he's all about, that this whole letter is an exposition of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's good news specifically because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, not just the fact of his righteousness is seen, but his righteousness is given as a gift to his people by faith. And so he announced that, and he celebrated that, and then he turned a corner in verse 18 to begin talking about the wrath of God, which might seem surprising if you're expecting a letter that celebrates good news. But of course, good news is only good news if it meets a deep need. And so he immediately begins to show how all humanity stands rightly condemned under the wrath of God for unrighteousness and ungodliness by and in our suppressing of the truth, our exchange of God's glory for the glory of that which is created, our exchange for his truth for that which is a lie. And then he talked in verses we looked at last week about how in response to that, the revelation of God's wrath against our idolatry and rebellion is that God has given over sinners to their sinful choices. He's handed them over to impurity and to the lusts of their hearts, to the dishonoring of their bodies, and to these other exchanges where natural sexual relations are exchanged for that which is contrary to nature. And so we spoke at some length last week about particularly homosexual sin as one form of many forms of sexual brokenness that exist among a fallen humanity, but a a form of brokenness nevertheless that illustrates the exchange and the reversal of God's design and, and his order in creation. And as I mentioned to you last week, I think issues surrounding this topic, sexual brokenness broadly, homosexuality in particular, and some other things that we'll cover some more here in a few minutes, issues surrounding this topic are so prevalent and front and center in our world and in our culture, and indeed there is confusion and capitulation among the church about how we should handle these things and what we should say the Bible really teaches and how we should live and how we should treat other people, that I thought it worthwhile to slow down and spend a little bit more time here. So while this is a series in Romans, most of our time this morning is actually going to be in Genesis. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn there to Genesis chapter 1. I think you can find that. It's the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. You know, in Matthew 19, Jesus was confronted by a group of Pharisees that were seeking to trap him, and they wanted to get Jesus to speak on a thorny moral issue of their day regarding divorce. And so they came to Jesus in Matthew 19 with this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? This is not a good faith question. 
they were hoping that Jesus would make a commitment on one side or the other of this issue, and one political group or another would thereby be incensed against what Jesus says, and he would be clearly uh, guilty of violating uh, the law of God. But, of course, that's not, they don't trap Jesus because he, he, he can outsmart them. But when he's confronted with this question about the morality of divorce, what he does in his answer is to refer to God's design for man and woman from the beginning. Have you not heard how God created them from the beginning, male and female? And then he quotes Genesis 2.24 about the institution of marriage. And so I think it wise to follow Jesus' model. And when we have questions about the morality of uh, same-sex marriage or transgender uh, ideology or whatever the other issues may be that surround these topics, I think we're wise to follow Jesus' model and look at the beginning. How did God design human beings to operate? What was God's purpose in creation for the way that he made human beings in the first place? I've got three goals for this message. Number one is to establish a positive biblical vision for sex and sexuality really from Genesis 1 and 2, because by Genesis 3, the wheels are coming off already. So we've got this brief but merciful and glorious window into what God intended for human beings and his creation. So I hope to establish a positive vision for sex and sexuality. And then I hope to connect that vision to the distortions and inversions that are taking place in Romans 1 that we looked at in detail last week, I've already mentioned this morning. So in other words, uh, the, the vision for human sexuality set forth by God's creative design helps us understand precisely why the distortions of Romans 1 are so problematic. And then finally, the third goal is simply to apply the gospel to our sexual brokenness, which is desperately needed. So phase one of all this, God's good design. God's good design. Now I'm gonna, uh, I've got a chart for you that uh, I'll have up on the screen behind me uh, that just sort of summarizes what we'll see uh, in these verses. So if you're a note taker and this kind of summary helps you, then you're welcome to copy that down. God's design broadly for sex and sexuality, and we'll see this as we walk through Genesis 1 and 2. First, God created people as sexual beings. Well, what does that mean? Well, specifically, you can see on the right side of the chart, he made them male and female. Equal but complementary reflections of God's image. So God created people as sexual beings. Secondly, God designed sex for human flourishing. Namely, the flourishing of procreation, that's the bearing of children and the propagation of the human race. Procreation and relational intimacy. That's what sex is for. And then thirdly, God authorized a context for sex. And that's maybe the least popular of all of the aspects of God's design in our world today. Nobody likes a context. Nobody likes boundaries. But nevertheless, God placed boundaries around the gift of sex. Namely, marriage, which is a lifelong covenant union of a man and a woman. And all of this is right from Genesis 1 and 2. All right? So there's a summary of it. But I want to walk you through these verses and, and show you where we see these realities. So Genesis chapter 1. Of course, Genesis 1 gives us this broad story, uh, a very poetic sort of telling of the creation of the world day by day and the various aspects of the cosmos that God puts into place. 
And it ends, the, the sixth and final day of his work, because as you know, the seventh day he rests from his labors, not meaning that God was tired and needed to take a break, but simply that he stopped working, right? He created everything in six days, and then he rested from his labors. So on the sixth and final day of creation, we find these verses toward the end of chapter 1 of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Verse 25 told us that God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. And here we are in verse 26 of Genesis 1. If you're looking at the Bible, you'll see. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gives them food to eat, tells them they can eat anything, any plant, except for the one plant, the one tree that we know of, that they should not eat from. And then down in verse 31, the summary verse, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So this gives us a summary of the creation of man and woman. And you'll notice as we go into chapter 2 in a few minutes that what he, it, we kind of go back in time a little bit and zoom in on how the creation of man and woman happened more practically. So this is the overview of it. God said, let us make man in our image, and so he created them. In his image, he created the male and female, right? And so we get this summary statement, and then in chapter 2, we zoom in, and we see the, kind of the particulars of, of how that came about. So let's talk about what we see in these verses right here, specifically verses 26 through 28. The first thing to notice is that God's triune nature seems to be reflected in verse 26. Let us make man in our image. Worth noting, we can't camp, camp out on it. But the triune nature of God, the relational nature of God is all reflected right there. We see that he made them, he made human beings in his image, in his image which is the most fundamental and important aspect of, of what it means to be a human being, I would suggest. He made them in his image. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he made human beings in the image of God? What is, what is that all about? Well, I'd point you to the text itself because it gives us some clues about what it must mean to be made in the image of God. The first thing he says in verse 20, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 26 when he's speaking of the purpose of creating mankind, he says, let us make man in our image. And then he expresses, explains that. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the first thing that it means for human beings to bear the image of God is that they are given the task of exercising dominion over the world. What is God in relationship to his creation? He's its ruler. And he's created human beings after his likeness to function as rulers over the earth. They're vice regents, sometimes called that. Human beings bear the image of God in that we represent his rule in a derivative way, in a stewarding way, 
that we are given dominion over the creation to care for the world and to rule over uh, the animals and every created thing. So the first thing that we notice about what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are given the task of exercising dominion over earth and over animals. The second glimpse that we get of what it means to be made in the image of God, I think, happens in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Something about the image of God in humanity is not adequately or fully reflected in only a one-gendered humanity. Human beings needed male and female to rightly and fully express the nature of God, the image of God. There's something unique and precious and special about that complementary binary reality that human beings are made male and female in his image. So the image of God is reflected in that complementarity of male and female. We'll flesh all this out more as we go. And I think the, another third thing that we see in this text about being made in the image of God is the, the fact that human beings are made to live in community, in relationship with one another. We saw that in verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our image. So God is a triune God, three persons existing eternally in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all co-equal, co-worthy of honor and worship, and existing from eternity past in community within the Godhead. God was not lonely. God did not need us because he was bored. God was fine in community among the three persons of the Trinity. <clears throat> and he made human beings to be relational creatures, which is why he says in just a minute, it's not good that the man is alone. In fact, that's the first thing he notices is not good about the creation. Everything he made was good. And when he made man and woman in his image, he beheld everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And then a few verses later, we're going to see, it's not good that the man should be alone. So, we're made in the image of God, which means we exercise dominion, it means we exist in this complementary binary of male and female, and it means that we are designed for life in community, relationship with one another and with God. And all of that is expressed in what's called, often called the creation mandate in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, here's the mandate, <clears throat> be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and then all these other kinds of animals and creeping things, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. This is the creation mandate. That is, he's created man and woman, and he's given them this charge, this mandate, this commission to go into the world and to rule it on his behalf. We'll come back to that creation mandate. <clears throat> so let's move forward to chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. So we've seen the summary of how God created mankind as male and female, to exercise dominion, to live in community, all reflections of his image. And now the writer backs us up to where he creates man and hasn't yet created woman, and we get a little bit of a, okay, here's how this 
played out, and it's a very interesting story. Let's look at verse 18 of Genesis 2. I'm going to read down through the end of this chapter. Then Lord, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I imagine that would take a while. But remember what he's doing here is looking for a suitable helper. All these animals are being paraded by Adam so that he can try to identify which one of these might be a helper, a partner fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord, excuse me, verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now we know that God already intended to make him a helper, right? He said back in verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. So this parading of all of the animals that already exist by Adam is an exercise for Adam's benefit, right? It's to show to Adam none of the creatures that I have already made really fit the role. None of them really will be a helper that's suitable for you. And so Adam sees that plainly. And then verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. That is a fascinating little bit, but we can't really spend any time on it, so follow, follow up with that another time. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? Like the other creatures weren't. They weren't like me. They weren't suitable for me. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God intended, designed, purpose to make a helper fit for him. The man is alone, and he needs a helper fit for him. Now, that word helper does not mean an assistant. It does not mean a servant, it points to the reality of a co-laborer in fulfilling the creation mandate. The creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, right? So ruling and keeping the earth is the creation mandate, and Adam needs a co-laborer. He needs a partner in that important work. Now, it's worth noting that even before we arrive at the creation of human beings, the ordering of the cosmos has already involved a series of fundamental binaries that define the very shape and nature of the world we live in. Light and dark, day and night, sun and moon, earth and sky, land and water. Like, this is the shape of the world that he's made already. So we shouldn't be surprised to find another fundamental binary within the crown jewel of God's creation, human beings. And we need to recognize that the binary, that is there's only two options, the binary male-female distinction among human beings is integral to both the image of God and the fulfilling of the creation mandate. If there is not a complementary binary 
relationship, male and female and human beings, then the image of God is not fully intact. And the fulfilling of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion can't be rightly carried out because the image of God is necessary for that task and the binary complementary relationship of male and female is necessary for the image of God, right? I'll make a note here before we move on that a binary human sexuality of male and female is necessary for reflecting God's image and for human flourishing even outside of marriage, right? So we've read here, and we'll talk more about the institution of marriage that we saw in verse 24, but even beyond the boundaries of marriage, the male-female binary is necessary and good for human flourishing, right? He said, it is not good for the man to be alone, which means something more than it is not good for a man not to have a wife. It means something more than that. <clears throat> so God's design for marriage is tied, for sure, to male-female complementarity, but male-female complementarity is about more than marriage. So we're right to get a theology of marriage from this, but we need to get more than a theology of marriage from these verses. So while only husbands and wives specifically are authorized to be fruitful and multiply, at least in the sense of procreation, the whole human race comprised of males and females is created in God's image and thus is charged with the creation mandate. Men and women together exercise dominion over the world in ways that are distinct from marriage and procreation. So we need to broaden our view of that. The image of God and the creation mandate is not only for people who are married. So here's an application of that. Number one, if you're unmarried, you are still a needed co-laborer with other human beings in the care and fruitfulness of the earth. Sometimes the church can speak about marriage in such a way that makes people who aren't married feel like there's just no place for me. I guess I'm a second-class citizen in God's world and in his church, and that's not the case. If you're unmarried, you are still a needed co-laborer with other human beings in the care and fruitfulness of the earth. If you are married, you are still a partner to other men and women outside your marriage in the carrying out of this work. So by God's design, all men and all women are partners in exercising dominion over his creation, not only husbands and wives. It's broader than that. All right, enough on that. We, see, we come to the institution of marriage, then, in, in verse 24. It's on the other page. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that, this statement about marital union of the first man and woman is intended to be a timeless and universal descriptor of marriage is evident in the fact that it is quoted and applied by both Jesus in Matthew 19, 4-6, like we, I talked about at the beginning, and by Paul in Ephesians 5:31, which Kate read for us earlier in the service. Paul quotes this verse in talking about the relationship of husband to wife as a reflection of Christ and his church. And he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So this is broader than just a unique relationship that Adam and Eve will enjoy. This is intended as an institution for all humanity in all times and places. When it says, therefore, 
That's how verse 24 starts, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father, or for this reason, a man shall leave. That points to the complementarity of man and woman. That's what's in view there, because we've just seen the story of Adam having all these animals paraded by him to demonstrate that there isn't a suitable helper for him. There isn't somebody that's like him, but different from him in all of the necessary ways. And so, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother shows us that this is the, uh, this is the purpose for, uh, or this is why he would be joined to his wife in a way that he wouldn't be joined to any other creature that God had made. And so we see that male-female complementarity is integral to the marital union and thus also to the sexual union as well, which is what is implied by that phrase, they shall become one flesh. There is a union there, a sexual union implied. Also interesting, note that there are two sets of male-female complementarity in the verse and a third set that I would say is implied in verse 24. So first... You've got a man who will hold fast to his wife. There's the first set of complementarity, a man and a wife. The second set is that the man will leave his father and his mother. That's another complementary, a sexual complementary, father and mother from whom the man came, right? Now, obviously, that isn't necessarily true of Adam because he was formed out of dirt from the ground, but it's going to be true of every other human being who has a mom and a dad, right? And we could infer that the wife to whom the man is holding fast also has a father and a mother. So there's three sets of, of sexual complementarity within Genesis 2, 24. It's clearly the shape that God has intended for this relationship. Also note before we move on from this, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I don't know if you can even imagine what that would be like. I can't. Nakedness and shame go hand in hand, don't they? In our experience, the thought of being seen, uncovered, is humiliating, embarrassing. And all that that implies, the brokenness, the shame that we feel, this is the way that God designed it. In the beginning, before the world is messed up, a man will hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh and there is no shame in this union. There is no shame connected to their sexuality or anything. So that's God's good design. That's the way he made the world. That's the way he made human beings. As a binary, complementary set, male and female, in his image. And the next thing we see, if you keep reading in Genesis, is sin's sad corruption. Sin's sad corruption. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 3. <clears throat> now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Tragic. Notice, Adam and Eve eat the fruit because they desire to be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? That's, that's what enticed them. Another binary, by the way, good and evil. The first thing they notice They knew that they were naked. The sexuality, the sexual nature of human beings as male and female is so integral to what it means to be made in the image of God that once they fall into sin and idolatry, the very first thing they notice is their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we have been trying to cover our shame and outrun our shame ever since. Well, God responds to their idolatrous choice, placing his creation under a curse. You want it? You can have it. Gave them over. Included in that curse is this word to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That's the way the ESV renders this verse. It's probably better to just say your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And there's complex thoughts about what that exactly means. But you can at least gather this. The battle of the sexes has begun, right? Male and female, which used to be in perfect complementary unity with one another and carrying out the, the, the creation mandate, they're now at war with each other. This is not going to work right. There's going to be power struggles. There's going to be oppression. There's going to be idolatry. There's going to be abuse from this day on. And the Genesis 3 curse has led to a Romans 1 world. So there, if you will, jump back to Romans chapter 1 with me. The Romans 1 world where God has given up idolatrous human beings to their idolatrous choices and their consequences. And the first of those things we see is that, the peop- that mankind has gone from dominion over creation to worship of creation. I don't know if you noticed this back in Genesis 1.26. told God said, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish and the, and the livestock and over every creeping thing. I don't know if that language sounds familiar to you. Look in Romans 1.23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So the very creatures over which man was designed to rule become instead the things he begins to worship. Absolute reversal of order. And a side note here, the creature to whom Adam and Eve listened in the Garden of Eden, whom they allowed to lead them into rebellion against God, is a creeping thing, is he not? The serpent? So here's another explicit reversal of God's design, and a specific distortion of the image of God in human beings. So remember, our fundamental sin is idolatry. 
Our primary problem is a worship problem. Always is. Always will be. From dominion to worship. The next thing, and we've seen this in some detail, we won't belabor it, but same-sex relationships. Same-sex sexual desire and relationships. Paul speaks very plainly about, especially in verses 24 through 27. He speaks of men and women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, committing shameless acts with one another. And I argue and hold that the, the nature that he has in view there is Genesis 1 and 2. Contrary to the nature of the way God created human beings and the way that he instituted marriage and sexuality to operate. Now, we discussed Paul's identification of same-sex relations as idolatrous exchanges last week, but observe this aberration in light of Genesis 1 and 2, the design for human sexuality, and the institution of marriage in particular as the complementary one-flesh union of a man and a woman, and you can see precisely why same-sex attraction is disordered desire. And same-sex sexual relations are a parody of the marital union that God instituted. It's a mockery of it. David Gushy, an evangelical scholar who has come over the last decade to uh, embrace an LGBT-affirming sexual ethic, uh, has written a book called Changing Our Mind. And in that book, he says this, Increasingly today, it is noted that core practices referred to in Genesis 1 and 2 including mutual care for children, helper, partner companionship, and total self-giving, can and do occur among covenanted gay and lesbian couples in an attempt to say that gay couples can fulfill Genesis 1 and 2 also, at least in some ways. My response to that is that this flattens the male-female complementarity inherent in the marriage relationship as instituted by God into a helper-partner companionship that sees no need whatsoever for gender complementarity. Are we to conclude that the only criterion that made Eve a suitable partner for Adam is that she was a human being and not, say, a turtle or a zebra? Does it mean nothing that she is also a woman? It also must overlook the obvious and utter inability for a same-sex partnership to be fruitful and multiply, which by all accounts is a significant portion of the creation mandate. And beyond the simple fact of the impossibility of reproduction among same-sex couples, are we to assume that God's design for a child to be raised by a father and a mother takes absolutely none of its power and effectiveness from the sexual difference that exists? between a man and a woman? Are mothers and fathers really interchangeable in the nurturing and discipling of a son or a daughter? I think the clearly implied answer with Genesis 1 and 2 in mind is no. Well, there's another form of sexual brokenness that's clearly a result of the fall and the consequent disorder of human sexual ethics and experience that's particularly prevalent in our own day, and so I think it's worth some comment, and that's transgenderism. This ideology argues that a person's gender identity may differ from the biological sex assigned to that person at birth. I'll point out that the language of assigned sex is misleading. 
because all that anyone is really doing when a baby is born is recognizing a person's sex, not assigning it. But in this case, what determines whether a person's gender identity differs from that person's biological sex? Well, you won't be surprised to find out whatever that person feels or believes himself or herself to be. Whatever I feel like I am, that's what I am, and nobody can say otherwise. That's the ethos of the world in which we live. In other words, a biological male who believes himself to be or feels himself to be a woman is truly and fundamentally a woman despite the biological reality present in his body. Or a biological female who believes herself to be or feels herself to be a man is truly and fundamentally a man despite the biological reality present in her body. The experience of this incongruence, this mismatch of biological sex and gender identity is currently known as gender dysphoria. Although it's worth pointing out that until 2013, it was identified by the American Psychiatric Association as gender identity disorder. They've dropped the nomenclature of disorder in an effort to remove the social stigma associated with it. And you can see the very speedy trajectory that this ideology has been on in our culture. It has gone from strange and obscure to front and center in every way. Romans 124 tells us that God gave up idolatrous humanity to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among themselves. Now, in one broad sense, all sexual sin dishonors the body. We quoted last week Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, who says that the one who sins sexually sins against his own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So all sexual sin is a form of dishonoring the body. Homosexual sin, which he identifies in verses 26 and 27, further dishonors the body and that it inverts the intended function for which God created them. But I think transgenderism may be the most brazen and flagrant way that our culture today dishonors the body by at best disregarding it, by ignoring its indications of sex and gender, and at worst harming and even mutilating it with puberty blockers, hormone treatments, and so-called reassignment surgeries. This is surely a dishonoring of the body that God has made. In a very real sense, this transgender ideology is a modern-day expression of an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is built on a dualistic view of the cosmos in which the world is divided into material and immaterial, like physical and spiritual. And that which is physical and material is flawed and even evil. And that which is spiritual and immaterial is good divine. Transgenderism hinges on the same dualistic view of nature, right? What is most true about an individual is what he or she believes about himself or herself, regardless of what the physical body displays. It's a disregarding of the body. The, the physical material doesn't mean anything if it doesn't match the immaterial and spiritual and this stark severance of soul from body is deeply unchristian. Christians believe that human beings are a union of soul and body, not just a soul that occupies a body, 
I've heard people say that. Well, I'm really a soul and I just have a body. That's not true. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. The Bible speaks of human beings as a union of soul and body. We are embodied souls. That's an inseparable kind of union. Only separated, indeed, by death for a season. The importance and eternality of that body-soul union is seen both in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who rose as an embodied soul and lives as such in heaven now, and in the future resurrection of all believers, when the soul and body of the dead in Christ will be reunited forever. So the soul-body union is essential to what it means to be a human being. And to deny that or to demean or belittle or reject one or the other of those components is a completely unchristian way of understanding what a human being is. Now, I want to be clear about two things before I move on from this. The first is to say this plainly. Transgender ideology is evil. And activism for this cause is destructive to persons, to families, to communities. Maybe I'll go one step further. Activism for the cause is destructive, yes, but passivity in the face of it is complicit in its influence. To say nothing is to let the cancer spread. To fail to teach and guide our children is to leave them subject to the whims of the world in a very confused age. Surely we must prepare ourselves to talk back to the culture on this matter. The second thing, though, that I want to do clearly is to distinguish between the ideology and its victims. Transgender ideology is evil, but people suffering gender dysphoria or confusion regarding their gender identity are not. We need to be able to distinguish those things. So we must be able at the same time to hold the line regarding truth and reality and oppose the evil of transgender ideology where we see it gaining ground. And at the same time, we must be able to love our neighbors, including neighbors who find themselves caught up in the language and rhetoric of the movement, our neighbors who are themselves confused or misguided about their own identity. Some of those neighbors may be our friends our fellow church members, our own children. So we've got to be clear on the truth of this and identifying the evil of this ideology. But we've got to love our neighbors. We're never exempted from that call. Jesus said the, most, the two most important commands are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Surely a part of loving your neighbor is speaking the truth but there's a way to speak the truth. It doesn't feel a lot like love. I think you know it when you see it. Well, our brokenness doesn't stop there. These are just a few examples. Look briefly at the list that rounds out chapter 1 of Romans. Down to verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's not a pretty list. 22 distinct vices recorded on that list, the longest vice list in the New Testament. And it's not exhaustive. Right? One of them was that we're inventors of evil, which means this list could keep growing. We can always find creative new ways to rebel against God. And as technology grows and expands, and we all have space rocket te- level technology in our pockets, there is no limit to the destruction and rebellion and idolatry that we can create and pursue. These things ought not to be so. We've seen God's good design and we've seen sin's sad corruption. The final thing I want to leave you with is this, Christ's merciful redemption. Goodness, we can't end on that note. Romans is about the gospel. Romans 1.16 pronounced this gospel as the power of God for salvation. How can that be true in our idolatry and sin? What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about our sexual brokenness and its varied expressions? I'm going to give you three. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who struggle with same-sex attraction, gender identity issues, and other forms of sexual brokenness. Those who are not in Christ are invited to come to him in faith and receive the gift of God's righteousness. You can find in Christ peace, hope, and eternal life no matter how you've struggled or sinned sexually. There is no brokenness or no sin that that puts you beyond the reach of his grace in the gospel. Those of you who are Christians and you're in the struggle in some way, God's grace to you in Christ is not just a hall pass to heaven someday. It is the power to change, the strength to fight against your indwelling sin, and the hope of a transformed life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. What battle can you not face with his help? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who struggle with whatever form of sexual brokenness you're in. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who are tempted to believe the world's lies about sexuality and gender. And I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't people in this room that are tempted to believe them. The gospel of Christ invites us daily to present our bodies as a living sacrifice and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Submit your mind, your beliefs, your perspectives, your understanding of what is right and good to God's spirit and allow his word to reform your thinking on these important matters. Don't form your beliefs and understanding of these matters by listening to your favorite talking head 
on TV or the internet. Go to the word and see what he has to say. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who are reluctant to welcome the sexually broken. I think there's plenty of people among the church, broadly, that would probably fit this category, who is the only speed that they know, the only tone that they know when they're talking about sexual sin is just anger and bitterness, animosity. So perhaps the thought of welcoming sexually broken people into your life, into your church, into your home is repugnant to you. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for you. The first thing I'd say to this group is you are the sexually broken. None of us have escaped the fall unscathed. And our sexual desires, instincts, and identities are included among the things in us that sin has broken. Every one of us is sexually broken. So we need not look down our noses at any other struggle. The second thing I'll say is this. There is no better place for a broken person to be than among the people of God under the preaching of the gospel. Do we want people who are sexually broken and struggling in this place? Yes, we do. Yes, we do including those who have sinned sexually and maybe continuing in sexual identity or relationship that God has forbidden. This is where you should be. You should be among the people of God. You should be hearing the word of God. You should be confronted with these realities and reminded of the grace of God in Christ that will reach any sinner who will repent. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ and you'll be saved. It is that gloriously simple. I'm going to conclude with some lyrics from a song by Sky Peterson called I Am Not My Own. I'm going to read a couple of verses of this. My body is a temple of the living God. I'll worship in this house that his blood has bought. As I bear his image, may I not profane the holiness I hold in this earthly frame. I am not my own, and now my heart is free. O maker, come and make what you will of me. There is nothing broken that you cannot repair. So, Lord, I leave my life in your loving care. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for welcoming us in our brokenness. Thank you for your patience and mercy. Lead us to repentance and faith afresh in the gospel of Jesus that we might experience your power to save. In Jesus' name, amen.